This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. This special episode of the Law and the Future of War podcast is a reproduction of a Macquarie University Centre for Environmental Law webinar titled The Protection of the Natural Environment in Times of Armed Conflict, A Few Reflections in Light of the Russian Invasion of Ukraine, presented by Dr. Eve Massingham. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to a very special webinar from our Centre for Environmental Law uh, Macquarie University's uh, uh, event on uh, Ukraine crisis. So uh, my name is Nenye Liu. For those who don't know me, I'm the director of the Center for Environmental Law here at Macquarie. Uh, before I uh, get started, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the traditional owners of the, of the, of the land, the Watamalaga clan of the Darul Nation, uh, whose culture and customs uh, have nurtured this land where I'm in, and also they will continue to nurture in the future. And I pay my sincere respect to uh, elders past, present, and future. Uh, today, we have this very special event, uh, which was initiated by myself uh, over the last weekend. Uh, we are all shocked by the war in Ukraine, and also, I guess for those who are in Sydney and Brisbane, we are also experiencing this extreme weather, the flooding at the moment, which is uh, horrifying as well. I must say, starting from 2019, uh, personally, really just personally, I feel like we are really living now in a more and more kind of dangerous world. There are probably two major existential uh, threats to our species these days, being the geopolitical tension and climate change. And we are now witnessing the extreme symptom of both of these two uh, existential threats to our human beings. In this time of, the, in this time of history and, and while a war is going on, mm-hmm. people may well ask, does international law matter? And also uh, I, have, I have seen people asking in, 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 on my Twitter, like, does environment matter? I think my, my short kind of uh, answer is, I think they are both actually interconnected. So peace and environment are interconnected. And what we choose to do now will rightly shape our future. That is, pro- that is probably why the UN was uh, established after the Second World War, uh, after the two brutal world war in the first half of, of the 20th century. And also, you know, when we are talking about this, I think now there is news all over the place that uh, the Europe's largest nuclear power plant is now on fire. I mean, this morning, this morning's news under a Russian attack. So, I mean, the thing is, I think when we are thinking of the environmental crisis in Ukraine, Chernobyl is not far away. And now, uh, after after thirty years of the collapse of Soviet Union. Uh, Ukraine has inherited a number of nuclear uh, facilities from the Soviet time. So, I mean, what we are talking about today is a very important, and I we certainly think shouldn't be a forgotten issue. That is, that is the state's obligations 
for the, it's in for the environment during the armed conflict. And we are very lucky to have uh, Dr. Eve Messingham uh, with us today to uh, give uh, this talk. So uh, let me just give a very short introduction uh, about Eve. So Eve is currently a, a senior research fellow with the School of Law at the University of Queensland. Uh, she, uh, I think her expertise is, is pretty much in the law of the armed conflicts, the international humanitarian law. So she has done a PhD on uh, weapons law. Uh, she uh, used to work for a decade at the international uh, for the International Red Cross and the International Committee of the Red Cross Regional Legal Advisor for East Asia. And uh, in recent years, I, I have noticed, that's why I invited Eve, is Eve's expertise now falls into a, this very special area of the international humanitarian law, that is to, uh, res to ensure respect for environment uh, during conflict. So this is very much the right topic with the right person. Uh, to uh, to discuss this very imminent issue today, and we are very lucky to have Eve with us. So, uh, with all this introduction, uh, now I will just hand over to Eve for the presentation. Thank you uh, very much for the um, to the Center for Environmental Law for the introduction um, and the opportunity to talk to you uh, today. I'm uh, joining this uh, webinar from Mianjin, the lands of the Turrbal and the Yagara people. Uh, this has been a place of teaching and learning for many thousands of years, and I'm very privileged to live and to work on these beautiful, um, if what somewhat waterlogged at the moment, uh, lands. Um, I pay my respects to our elders past and present. As was just mentioned, and some of you will be aware from news reports in, in the last hour, um, you know, this, this breaking news is coming in that Europe's largest nuclear power plant uh, is on fire after um, a Russian attack. Now, um, I certainly can't pronounce, and I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the name of the, the power plant, uh, but just to sort of alert you, I've, I've thrown this in um, just now, but I am going to, to talk about um, the, the nuclear facilities, um, of which there are a large number in Ukraine, um, and of course, Chernobyl, that um, people will be aware from a few days ago, has already been um, captured um, by Russian forces. So I will come back to the nuclear issue. Just to give you a bit of an idea of, of my outline for today, I'm going to make a few introductory remarks about the laws of war and, and international humanitarian law um, in the broader context of both international law and environmental law. Um, as has been pointed out, I'm an international humanitarian lawyer. Um, I've spent my career um, mainly working with um, different uh, components of the Red Cross movement on uh, education and, and understanding uh, around international humanitarian law. Um, so I'm, I'm not an environmental um, law expert. Uh, I'm also going to make some observations about enforcement. Uh, this tends to be something that we talk about at the end of international humanitarian law presentations, uh, but I think it's something that always uh, gets questions, and so I, I wanted to put this up front. Um, talk a little bit about the environment in Ukraine and specifically just really from news reports over the last 10 days, some of the issues that, that have been raised. And then I want to take you through the general rules of international humanitarian law and the specific protections uh, that apply to protect um, the environment 
um, in times of armed conflict uh, and talk a little bit about weapons law as well. And if we do have time, uh, I'll also talk a bit about ensuring respect for international humanitarian law, um, which, uh, as was pointed out, is, is part of uh, one of my sort of research projects at the moment. So in terms of international humanitarian law as part of international law, in talking about this topic, I think it is particularly uh, important and relevant in light of the tragic events unfolding in Ukraine this week to note that this is a Russian invasion of Ukraine in clear violation of the legal prohibition on the use of force uh, in international law. Now, this is a separate area of international law, international law on the use of force, and many of you will be very familiar with this. Um, this is a violation of Article 2.4 of the UN Charter. Um, if anyone is interested and hasn't um, already seen it, uh, the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford University uh, held a webinar on this a couple of days ago. You can easily get it on YouTube. Um, and Professor Dapa Akande speaks um, specifically to the, the Article 2.4 um, violation um, issue. What is significant, of course, about this from an international humanitarian law perspective is that because we have a armed conflict which very clearly uh, involves two states, we are talking about the rules that apply in times of international armed conflict, which is a uh, much broader category of, of legal laws um, that are a part of, of, of international treaties. And some of the challenges that we have around questions of customary international law and questions of applicability in non-international armed conflicts which many of today's armed conflicts are, just, just don't apply. Um, so I think that's a, an important um, first point. In terms of these very specific rules that apply during armed conflict, uh, it's also important to acknowledge there are a range of other international laws. Um, and there's some incredibly interesting discussions, which uh, many of you as, as environmental law experts will be much more familiar with than me, of course, in terms of obligations to prevent transboundary harm, human rights to a clean environment, just to name a few. So international humanitarian law that I'm going to be talking about is just one part of the legal framework. Um, and there are a whole range of laws protecting the natural environment, um, including environmental law, law of the sea, for example, some aspects of international criminal law. Um, and of course, the law on state responsibility um, also has relevance here. Um, so I'm certainly not purporting in any way to cover the full gambit uh, of different legal frameworks that, that might be relevant. Uh, but when you do have uh, an armed conflict, there is this specific legal framework, international humanitarian law, um, to discuss. And a point that comes up in, in a number of the discussions and has done since, since the 70s when um, sort of a lot of this environmental legal framework really uh, took off in global discussions is this question about whether international humanitarian law is protecting the environment for its intrinsic value um, and not just for the, vi the viable survival of the civilian population. So you may be aware that a lot of the provisions of the Geneva Conventions are about protecting civilians um, and protecting them and their ability to provide um, for themselves. Now, this debate was an ongoing debate, uh, even um, back in the 1970s, leading to additional Protocol 1 to the Geneva Conventions, which I'm going to refer to in, in some detail in the presentation. 
some of the targets in attendance were of the view that the environment in times of war itself should be protected for its intrinsic value, and others considered that um, the purpose of the environment from an international humanitarian law perspective is the continued survival and health of the civilian population. Um, and so you can see those um, different perspectives in the official records of the diplomatic conference um, uh, of Geneva in the 1970s. Although IHL perhaps does not traditionally protect the environment in the sense that we sort of today understand the green movement, and the focus is primarily on civilian survival, concern for the environment has definitely been reflected in international laws since the 70s. And I think it's fair to say that there is more to come in this space. Um, the International Committee of the Red Cross rightly pointed out in their very recently published guidelines on the protection of the natural environment in armed conflict, uh, a 2020 publication, um, and a work that uh, if you're not familiar with, I commend to you as the excellent efforts of, of former colleagues of mine, including uh, Vanessa Murphy, who's one of the, the key drafters. Um, they point out that efforts are underway to clarify and strengthen the international legal frameworks in armed conflict. Um, and definitely state interest in this topic has gained momentum. Uh, you might be aware that the International Law Commission has appointed a couple of rapporteurs uh, on this and produced um, draft principles on the protection of the environment in relation to armed conflict. Uh, states responded to that document in 2021 and further discussions are due to start in April 2022 on this document. So a, a little bit, and I'll probably say this a couple of times, but there's a little bit of wait and see in the space of sort of protecting the environment in, in times of armed conflict, but it's definitely a topic of hot conversation um, even, even prior to the events of the, of the last 10 days. Um, so that's what I wanted to just sort of place this conversation in the context of broader international humanitarian law, um, sorry, broader international law, but also broader developments in international humanitarian law. Now, on the question of enforcement, and of course, it's very hard to have any IHL conversation without thinking about enforcement. Um, I wanted to uh, make a couple of, of points. Firstly, uh, a very clear acknowledgement uh, from me, even as an international humanitarian lawyer, who this is what I, I do and, and, and um, and I'm absolutely fascinated by, but very happy to admit that the legal framework is not a perfect solution. Indeed, if you think about the context of international humanitarian law, it is only ever going to be a plan B. The first point, the, the use of force violation that I referred to just before is where we really uh, should be, we really start the conversation. Um, and it is only when mankind has failed in its ability to prevent the use of force that international humanitarian law even applies. It applies um, in times of, of armed conflict. And it acknowledges that it's a plan B. Uh, it doesn't purport um, to have all of the answers. That said, uh, there are very um, significant developments uh, this week um, from an enforcement perspective. Uh, you can see a couple of uh, screenshots that I've just taken there from the homepage of the International Criminal Court um, with a very quick development to an opening of an investigation um, for the situation uh, in, in Ukraine. Um, so the prosecutor, um, Karim Khan QC's decision 
um, to open an investigation and, and supported by a number of states, not because either Ukraine or Russia are state parties, but rather because um, Ukraine has um, basically allowed um, the International Criminal Court to, to take on this investigation. Um, so, so that is, is happening uh, and damage to the natural environment um, constitutes a war crime under various different provisions of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. And so there is absolutely the possibility of some criminal sanctions um, arising uh, from this uh, conflict. And we can certainly um, talk more about that in, in questions. The second aspect of enforcement that I just wanted to mention um, and um, is, is the sort of the compensation or, or even uh, going forward, I think, more restoration aspect of it. And so you might be aware that the UN Compensation Commission following the first Gulf War um, paid uh, reparation, um, required the payment of reparations um, for Iraq's invasion of, of Kuwait. Uh, now, Payne and Sand have done some work uh, that has noted that over about $5 billion of the $52 billion in total was paid for claims relating to environmental damage, including damage from military fortifications, water pollution, hazardous um, waste. Now, of course, we're talking about quite a different situation in this context with um, Russia being a permanent five uh, member of the UN Security Council. And so um, something uh, like that uh, may, of course, not come out of it in this context. But I just wanted to note the inclusion of environmental concerns in, in a UN compensation system. And also note that going forward, there is um, a greater focus on, to, on restoration of, of the environment. The African Convention on the Conservation of Nature and Natural Resources, which was updated in 2017, included in those updates um, some requirements for parties to actually restore and rehabilitate damage resulting from military and hostile actions. Uh, and this is definitely something of, of interest to the UN. So again, a little bit of a, a wait and see space, but I wanted to, to mention that. Now, this is sadly a, a very small uh, um, snapshot of the ever-growing list of some of the concerns um, over the last 10 days that have, have been environmental impacts um, from the, the conflict um, in Ukraine. Uh, so the uh, use of, of explosive weapons in populated areas, radiation um, from explosive uh, weapons and fighting around nuclear facilities, the groundwater contamination. Um, you know, there is a lot uh, to discuss here. I'm certainly not an expert on the environment of Ukraine. Um, so I did a few Google searches this week. Um, I found that Ukraine has 33 internationally significant wetlands. And although it occupies only 6% of Europe's territory, it has 33% of its biodiversity. Um, as I said, these are quick Google, Google searches. So, so don't um, quote me on it, but clearly the impact on the environment um, will only be exacerbated um, by already fragile ecosystems. And this is, of course, against the backdrop of serious ecological destruction from earlier fighting. So um, a, a 2018 UN Environment Program report uh, noted Donbass being on the precipice of an ecological catastrophe fueled by air, soil and water pollution from the combustion of large amounts of ammunition and fighting and flooding at industrial plants. Um, you know, this is, is clearly a, an ecological um, catastrophe on, on both the biodiversity 
fragile ecosystems perspective and the already contaminated um, ecosystems aspect. And then there's the question of carbon emissions from military activity as well. This has been a big topic of conversation in recent times, especially around um, COP26 uh, and the discussion of sort of monitoring carbon uh, emissions. Um, so it's all, um, you know, it's all not, not looking good um, for the environment um, and obviously for the civilians who rely on that environment. So to turn now then to uh, give you a bit of an idea about some of the provisions of the Geneva Conventions and uh, particularly additional protocol one uh, that I wanted to share with you um, as part of the conversation. I think firstly, I just want to note that Ukraine and Russia are both state parties to not only the Geneva Conventions, which all states are party to, um, but also to additional protocol one to the Geneva Conventions. And so Sometimes when we have these conversations, we have to have discussions about is this customary international law, um, but these are binding as treaty provisions on the parties to this conflict. Now, IHL seeks to reduce the suffering during times of armed conflict, and it, as I said before, primarily protects the environment insofar as it provides for the civilian population. And what... Um, is, is clear is that in the history of international humanitarian law and the development of, of the regulations in this area, protecting the food sources and clean water and the needs of the civilian population has been central. And there really are two prongs to this here. I think first, protecting the environment against the damage itself and irrespective of whether we're talking about it from an intrinsic value point of view or from a human protection point of view, or actually both because they're so intertwined. Um, or we're talking about protecting the surrounding environment from damage when, when attacking objects. Uh, but the provisions that you can see on your screen are relevant to, to all of these. So uh, the protections are for civilian objects. Uh, the environment is at, at first instance a, a civilian object and therefore protected from attack. Um, and under the core principle of distinction in international humanitarian law, the environment can't be the subject of attack. However, the framework of international humanitarian law is such that civilian objects are effectively defined as being not military ob objectives. And so to define a military, uh, to define a civilian object, you need to look at the definition of, of military objectives. And military objectives are those not just the obvious ones, the tanks and the military bases, military by nature, but military objects are also those that are used um, or have a purpose or location that makes an effective contribution to the military effort. And so at first instance, if you think about where the natural environment is being used as a military objective, then if an attack on that doesn't cause disproportionate effects to the civilian population, it could be lawful if the appropriate precautions are taken because it's a military objective, it's become a military objective. However, because of these special provisions in Additional Protocol 1, um, and this is, is very much, um, if you think about the context of this, negotiated in a post-Vietnam War um, era, uh, and in particular the tactic of, of spraying Agent Orange uh, on uh, vast areas of, of land, um, you know, led to uh, the prohibition of particular tactics that may cause widespread long-term and severe damage to the natural environment. And you can see that in Article 35.3 of Additional Protocol 1. 
And in particular, you can see in Article 55, one, that care must be taken in warfare to protect the natural environment against this widespread long-term and severe damage. Now, there is a reference in, in the second part of this provision to um, the prejudice, prejudicing the health and the survival of the civilian population um, as well. And there is, uh, as you can see on the screen, also Article 54.2 of Additional Protocol 1, which is prohibiting the attack on objects indispensable to the survival of the civilian population, foodstuffs, agricultural areas, uh, etc. So both attacks on the environment itself, even when being used for a military purpose, and attacks on objectives that would cause a heightened environmental destruction to the surrounding areas, uh, are therefore prohibited by these um, particular provisions. Uh, if the civilian natural environment is commandeered uh, by the military, uh, if their appropriate precautions aren't taken, um, then attacks uh, on those, albeit military objectives, are, are not allowed. Now, we've seen, um, in addition, obviously, to the nuclear issue, which I'll turn to in a moment, we have seen reports of Ukrainian oil and gas facilities being hit in the past um, week, for example. Um, there's obviously the, the legal um, and fa the factual questions about whether they're being used for military purposes or not. Um, but if they are being used um, for military purposes, if care is not taken to protect the natural environment against uh, the widespread and long-term severe environmental damage, in those objectives being attacked, uh, pursuant to Article 55, um, then you potentially have a violation of international humanitarian law. Here I have mainly talked about the additional protocol to the Geneva Conventions, uh, but just to also mention that there are some other instruments, um, some uh, soft law and, and, and hard law. So, for example, the San Reno Manual on International Law Applicable to Armed Conflict at Sea um, ident talks about identified marine areas containing fragile ecosystems or habitats um, to be uh, given special protection. And this is potentially uh, a forthcoming uh, issue um, for further discussion uh, based on the reports that I've just been reading this morning about a potential naval attack on Odessa. Um, there's also, for example, protections under the World Heritage Convention for, for places and property of particular uh, significance um, under that convention. So if we turn then to um, a look at the, the nuclear issue, um, there's some 15 nuclear reactors on Ukrainian territory. Um, and in addition to these major news reports that we've seen in the last hour or so about the uh, nuclear power plant, being like Europe's largest nuclear power plant being on fire, um, we've already seen the reports of uh, a roughly 20-fold radiation spike reported around Chernobyl. Um, and BBC News reported that this was caused by heavy military vehicles stirring contaminated land around the exclusion zone. Um, so there is, you know, a very significant risk uh, for the environment and for populations and, and for the, the uh, global community around um, these uh, attacks. One of the things that I just saw in the news reports was that Ukrainian authorities were saying, can we please have, you know, a ceasefire? I'm um, not sure if they were using it, um, the, the pleas in, in quite the way that I just did, but can we have a ceasefire around this facility so that we can put this fire out that's taking place at this, this nuclear plant? And so um, 
I'm not suggesting that there was any military use of this facility. I, I don't have information about that. But even if there was, even if there was some kind of idea that this was a legitimate military objective, um, it's clear that the appropriate precautions which are required um, by the provisions of international law, like allowing the fire to be put out, um, are um, being challenged uh, at this very point in time as, as we speak. Uh, and there is a, obviously a hugely grave concern around this. Now, th the fact that um, this sort of thing could happen was, of course, something that was conceived by uh, the Geneva Conventions and the, the drafters. Um, and so we see in Article 56 of Additional Protocol 1 this particular provision for dangerous forces. Um, and so nuclear facilities, uh, as, as part of that, have special protection against uh, attack. Um, and the, this is because the release of dangerous forces from uh, these facilities is, is um, of, of grave concern. Um, and so this is something else um, to be aware of in this particular context. And then, of course, there's the issue of uh, weapons and the various weapons uh, that are being used and the uh, significant environmental consequences uh, for this. And I'll, I'll talk a, a little bit generally about weapons, but I'll also um, make some observations about nuclear weapons. So the rules of international humanitarian law prohibit the use of weapons that have the following characteristics. So firstly, those with indiscriminate effects. Secondly, those that cause unnecessary suffering or superfluous injury. And thirdly, those that are intended to or may be expected to cause, wide, to cause widespread long-term and severe damage to the natural uh, environment. In addition to these three core rules, uh, there are specific weapons law treaties that have a, a range of provisions, particularly prohibiting certain weapons. And so poison, biological weapons, chemical weapons, um, herbicides such as Agent Orange are prohibited by particular treaties of, of international uh, humanitarian law. I thought I'd mention a couple of uh, weapon types of weapons that have come up on the news this week. So one of them, you, you will have seen reports about white phosphorus. Um, this often comes up in these, in these type of conversations. Um, this is an incendiary weapon, so it's intended to set fire and, and burn, and obviously that's very concerning for civilians and also the environment. Uh, now, its use um, as, a, as a chemical for um, attacking uh, targets um, is prohibited by the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, but its use um, as a sort of e signalling or um, illumination um, as a military uh, tactic is not uh, prohibited. And so um, there obviously are therefore, you know, two ways of, of using it. One, one is okay and, and one is not. Um, but this is something um, to, to bear in mind um, when you're seeing the, the news reports. And, of course, even in the illumination or signalling uh, aspect to it, uh, there are precautions that, that need to be taken to protect the civilian population and the civilian environment. Um, the other type of weapon that I've seen quite a few news reports this week about is these thermobaric or vacuum bombs, they seem to be being called by the media, um, which causes a shockwave, uh, which uh, basically sucks the air from the lungs. Now, this is not a new type of weapon. Uh, they've been used since the 1960s, and they come in various different sizes and, and methods of deployment. When used against uh, military targets, they're not specifically uh, illegal, uh, but there's clearly circumstances where their use would be problematic. 
However, I haven't really been able to find any kind of environmental discussion um, about um, their use, um, but there could be some serious um, environmental consequences uh, from their use. Although, of course, there are um, serious environmental consequences from many weapons that, that are lawful um, and the explosive remnants of war aspect um, and the radiation um, aspects of, of different weapons are, are very concerning to the environment as well. Uh, finally, then, sorry, just um, to back, just to say a few words about um, nuclear weapons, um, which is, is something that um, I've done a bit of work on and, and, and looked at specifically in, in my PhD. Um, you, you may be aware that uh, as of about just over 12 months ago, there is a treaty um, prohibiting uh, the use of, of nuclear weapons. This is a, a long-discussed uh, idea that has, has finally come um, to fruition. Um, but, of course, um, neither uh, states um, are party to, to that treaty and, and it, is a, it is a very new, new treaty. So to consider nuclear weapons, I think, you know, a lot of um, us still go back to this advisory opinion by the International Court of Justice in 1996 that gave us this very unhelpful, if, um, I believe, conclusion of sort of not, not really answering the question. Um, in that case... It was held, and this was a 7-7 decision by a president's casting vote, that you couldn't conclusively conclude um, that nuclear weapons would be illegal in an extreme circumstance of, of self-defence. Um, now, I believe that the, the, the court, insofar as they did um, conflate the two, erred in conflating international humanitarian law and the use of force in that judgment, and um, I believe and agree with those judges and including um, in this the president who observed that um, this decision wasn't made because nuclear weapons as they stood at that time could ever be used in compliance with IHL. It was made on the basis that there could be new technological developments in the future that included a nuclear weapon that could be used in compliance with IHL. Um, I think that uh, since 1996, we've, we've come uh, some way in those um, understanding of the technology. Um, the US Department of Defense and Energy about a decade later said that, look, it's just really not possible to have a, a low, lower nuclear weapon capable of um, not um, causing this collateral damage. Um, indeed, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki nuclear bombs are considered small, low yield nuclear weapons. Um, and discussions through the 2010s leading to the creation of the, the Treaty on the Prohibitions of Nuclear Weapons made it really clear that this is just, just not an option. Um, so I would hope that the, the decision um, would be made uh, differently these days in light of all of the information we have about the inherently indiscriminate nature of the weapons, um, the unnecessary suffering and, and horrendous intergenerational impacts uh, of these weapons and also the alarming consequences for the environment, for climate change, for rainfall, temperature, food production, for, for everything um, environmentally uh, related. So um, the, the fact that um, reports are that Russian nuclear weapons are on high alert is incredibly um, concerning um, for a whole range of reasons, uh, you know, primarily humanitarian, but is also um, very legally um, problematic. I think we're, we're pretty uh, much out of time to allow some time for questions. Um, 
where does this leave us? Well, clearly there's going to be some horrendous environmental destruction in Ukraine as a result of the conflict. Um, crimes have um, already committed, uh, been committed in violation of IHL, um, including those on the rules protecting the environment. And there may be some, some charges in due course and, and some compensation uh, payable. To say a few words about um, efforts to stop this happening, I guess, in the future, um, just to uh, mention again the ICRC guidelines and the practical steps um, that they suggest to take. Um, and this is definitely not in, in relation to the, the current context. It's all too late now, of course. Um, but in terms of education and training, designating areas of particularly fragile ecosystems and environments, um, setting up um, particular zones, um, demilitarised zones to try and protect um, the environment um, are, are things... Uh, to, to consider going forward. Um, and I think there are, you know, a range of things to discuss in the area of international humanitarian law and the environment, the, um, the protection of the environment itself, its intrinsic value, um, the, the types of compensation and rehabilitation um, that might take place. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it there to allow some time for questions. Um, but uh, just to say, I think you know, there's clearly some uh, horrendous uh, consequences that are, that are taking place. Um, international humanitarian law absolutely does not have all of the answers. It's not going to um, suddenly make everything better. But there are some very clear legal provisions that are being violated. Um, and there may be um, some consequences uh, down the track for that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Eve. Uh, I think this is, this is very comprehensive. And uh, I mean, at least uh, we need to talk about it. We definitely need to talk about it uh, in this time of, of, of crisis and war and, and everything. And there are existing legal obligations in this uh, imperfect uh, international legal framework. I mean, it's not just about international humanitarian law. International law in general is imperfect, but it doesn't mean that we, 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 we don't aspire to improve and also uh, make sure it's compliance. Thank you for the Centre for Environmental Law at Macquarie University for making this recording available to us. Links to Eve's references and a link to the YouTube version of this webinar are available in the show notes. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.